Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12 as we come back to this chapter when, in which we've been studying for a number of weeks, trying to understand this all-important issue of spiritual gifts. And we've been making several notes along the way in the opening verses of this chapter, just noting some of the points that Paul makes. For example, that his emphasis falls on opportunities, not so much on capabilities, and with that, and with that, that opportunity comes the opportunity to trust the Lord for the resources and whatever tasks the Lord puts in front of us. And so we understand that the, the, the ministries and the, servants, the service that Lord, the Lord gives to us, all of those things are gifts from Him. And within those opportunities, we have resources that are gifts from Him. And all of that stuff is sort of embedded in Paul's mindset when he speaks about spiritual gifts. He would often speak about his own ministry as a gift or a grace that had been given to him to preach the gospel. And within that, he trusts that the Lord gave him all the resources necessary to fulfill the task. And so we've noted along the way that not only is the emphasis on those opportunities, not on the capabilities, but that there is a, there's an inherent uh, need to trust the Lord that, that all that we need comes from Him. He's the unified source from which all these resources come. And this is Paul's point as you move through the chapter, that uh, no matter what the gift is, no matter what the ministry is the Lord has given you, the Lord equally is the source for every one of us. He's the one who, who pours into us those resources necessary to fulfill the task, which really kind of brings up a third point we've been making which is no matter what the gift that's being mentioned here, it's all something that is supernatural. It's supernatural because when Paul speaks about various gifts, he's talking about something that is is beyond your natural ability. It's not something that you're born with. It's not something in which you operated as an unbeliever. It's not something that you can operate now in your own natural giftedness. It's always something for which you're to depend on the Lord, to trust in the Lord, and to find your sufficiency in Him. So as, uh, as Paul talks about all these things, he's talking about supernatural uh, abilities, uh, stuff that goes beyond our natural, we would say. But even though we're talking about supernatural abilities, we're not necessarily talking about miraculous abilities. That is to say, as you operate in trusting the Spirit, you often operate in very natural processes. So, for example, if you're a teacher, you may offer to the Lord not only your training, but also your study and your diligence and and whatever it might be. You offer all that up to the Lord, and, and, and you study to show yourself approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, exactly as as Scripture calls you to do, you offer all that up and you find that the Lord uses that as you operate in a gift of teaching to edify uh, others and to magnify His name. Or you might have, for example, a gift of administration. And so you go about a task or an event, you organize it, you make plans, you petition for helpers, you train volunteers, you carry out those plans, and yet all along the way you are constantly asking the Lord for wisdom and righteousness and favor, and you're finding that He hears your prayers and He supplies your needs. And so at the end of the day, we stand back and we recognize that no matter what's accomplished through us, it's not of us. 
It is, it is from the Lord. It is a gift of His grace. And it magnifies His name and we give Him thanks. And it's necessary all along the way to trust in Him. These are all gifts that we would classify as gifts of providence. That God operates all the time in all sorts of gifts, specifically equipping us for various tasks, but working it out providentially through the natural processes of life. There are other gifts, though. Gifts that operate, we would say, outside of those natural processes, beyond normal providence, gifts that we would actually classify as miraculous. That is to say, these gifts transcend the laws of nature, that we even say in some cases they violate the laws of nature, in order to accomplish things which the Lord has called His servants to do. These miraculous gifts still meet all the same criteria, That is to say that they still come from the Lord. They still find all their sufficiency in Him. They still are are sovereignly appointed by God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. They still are for uh, for the sake of equipping people for some specific task. They still all are for the common good, as he says in verse 7. They still operate in, in, in the same purpose as these providential gifts, but they're separated from them in that they're fulfilled and carried out by miraculous means. Now, this seems to be the category of gifts that Paul has pulled out for us in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, the gifts that have become our focus both last week and today, nine gifts listed in total. They all seem to be grouped together here because they all share in that miraculous nature. That is to say, there are other gifts of the Spirit that are spoken about, gifts such as mercy or teaching or administration or evangelism or whatever it might be. None of them are listed here. None of those normal gifts of providence, but Paul's focus seems to be on those miraculous gifts And probably because it had become the focus of the Corinthian church. And Paul's main point is it doesn't matter what the gift is. I mean, it can be the most glamorous, glorious, spectacular, miraculous gift. It doesn't matter. It still comes by God's sovereign appointment and by His sufficient supply and for His glory and for the edification of others. That's Paul's point. He makes it in verse 7, he makes it again in verse 11, and he's driving it home with this list of gifts. Now, even though that's the main point, we've taken time to sort of step aside to just think about the list itself. While it's incidental to the main point, it has become the focus of many people. Because when they read this list of gifts, it really, it doesn't always... uh, correspond, we would say, or I'd say it would raise a lot of questions in people's minds because they're not quite sure how to understand them. And in the experience of many Christians, perhaps the experience of most Christians, these gifts seem to be lacking or non-existent in the church. For that reason, people struggle to understand what they mean. What do they refer to? What do they look like? Because they've never experienced anything that would seem to fit this category or this description that you find in Scripture. That's why we conclude that these miraculous gifts no longer operate in the church today. 
The providential gifts are taking place all around us. God is supernaturally at work, going beyond our natural abilities, working through providential means in every ministry we serve, constantly in need to trust in Him and be filled with His Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, by all appearance, these miraculous gifts no longer operate. And in fact, those who would claim that they still do inevitably have to redefine them to be something less than miraculous, something less than what they are described to be in the Word of God in order to claim that they still operate today. But any honest assessment, any sincere look into the pages of Scripture, any any thorough understanding of the way that Scripture defines them brings, or I should say presses the point that these things that we read in Scripture have no evidence of any existence operating today. We want to take a, a little time this morning to go through these uh, in some more detail. We started last week by looking at them, beginning with the word of knowledge in verse 8, and excuse me, the word of wisdom, and then the word of knowledge, and then the gift of faith and the gifts of healings, which Paul mentions in verses uh, 8 and 9. Today, we want to look at the remainder of this list and just compare it to what we see on the pages of Scripture, ask ourselves about the validity of these gifts, and help prepare our minds and ground our understanding in exactly what the gifts are, why God gave them, and perhaps why we don't see them today. I want to draw your attention this morning, verse 10, to the fifth gift in Paul's list, which is the gift of of miracles, or some people say the working of wonders. You can translate it different ways. It's translated that way, or I should say both ways in various translations of the Bible. But I want you to pay attention in verse 12, because just like with the gifts of healings, Paul lists this gift in the plural. That is to say, it's not a gift of, of miracles. It is the gifts of miracles, literally the workings of powers. That's what it says in the original text. The energizing, the working of powers. And the plural form probably emphasizes, just like with healings, that this is a categorical structure. Paul, in other words, he's not trying to name for us nine individual gifts. He's giving us nine broad categories under which you find various manifestations. And this may be the broadest of them all because miracles and powers could encompass all sorts of things. It may be something like uh, exorcisms, certainly, or it could be something like opening of prison doors or something similar to Paul being bitten by a snake on the island of Malta in Acts 28 and not having any effects by it whatsoever. It could be uh, miracles of nature, such as Jesus, and of course, Peter after him walking on water, whatever it might be, these were all various demonstrations of wonders or powers at work. And Paul just sort of takes them all. They don't fit neatly under any other category, healings or prophecy or whatever it might be. And he just talks about all these gifts of, of miracles, all these workings of wonders. It's probably be impossible 
if you cataloged everything that you could identify, both in the New Testament and the Old, when it comes under this category of miracles, it would probably be difficult to really state specifically a single purpose that unifies all of these things. Every one of them operated under different circumstances and different times by different people and maybe even for slightly different reasons. But I think you could group every one of them, or at least we should say the Bible seems to group every one of them under one driving purpose, no matter whether it was manifest in the life of Christ or the manifest in the life of His apostles or manifest in the life of prophets. The Bible seems to identify one driving purpose for all of these wonders, all of these miracles, and that is for the purpose of authenticating, for the purpose of validating, for the purpose of marking out some person as a spokesman, a representative, a a mouthpiece, we would say, of God. God did, in other words, He didn't give wonders and He didn't give miracles to be some sort of sideshow or circus or spectacle. And that wasn't the purpose. It wasn't random or anything like that. It was, a, it was a purpose to validate or authenticate a spokesman or messenger or a person bringing a new message from Him. So that you would know if someone stood up and said, hey, I have a word from God, you would know whether or not that person is speaking out of his own imagination, out of his own deception, or whether or not he's truly speaking for the Lord. Now, just a couple of places to demonstrate this. You can flip over to Acts chapter 2, and you see it, first of all, in Peter's statement about Jesus Christ himself. Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he preaches a message about Christ to a bunch of unbelieving Jews who eventually many of them will come to know Christ that day. 3,000, we're told. And in the midst of this preaching, he tells them in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Translate that word wonders as miracles. And what he's saying to us here is that Jesus Christ was attested. He was validated. He was confirmed. He was marked off by the miracles that he worked. Interestingly, when you come over to Hebrews chapter 2 later on, you find someone who was apparently himself not an apostle. And he's writing about the apostles. And he says in Hebrews 2, after the gospel was first spoken through the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard, that is, by the apostles themselves, the firsthand witnesses, God also bearing witness with them by signs and wonders and various miracles according to His will. So here he says, not only was Christ validated, but those who heard Christ as eyewitnesses, they also came speaking the word of God, and they themselves were validated, or God bore witness to them by miracles. And you look at, through Scripture, and this is exactly what you see over and over again. You can go through the book of Acts, and you can see the testimony of God working wonders through the hands of the apostles. Now you look in Acts 14, and you see about Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, they spent a long time, Luke tells us, speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting that signs and miracles be done by their hands. 
And this is what you see, God validating His spokesman by these signs over and over again. As a matter of fact, Paul says that this was the sign of an apostle, a true apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So no matter what you say about miracles, no matter what your conclusion is in each specific scenario, no matter what you think God might have, been, might have been accomplishing through whatever He's accomplishing, I think it's pretty clear as you look through Scripture that the miracles were given for one driving purpose, and that is to validate, to authenticate, to prove God's genuine messengers. When He spoke through them, He wanted to give some sort of sign so that you would have confidence that they're speaking not their own imaginations, but the Word of God. In fact, it's interesting if you just think about Christ's life. He lived some 30 years here on the earth in ostensibly a very normal lifestyle. We have no record of any miracle taking place throughout his entire childhood, although he surely was a compassionate and kind and helpful and serving person. We know that He lived a righteous life. We know that He exhibited all the fruits of the Spirit. And yet not one single miracle ever took place in His life, it seems, until the wedding of Cana. One day, and Luke, I mean, excuse me, John chapter 2 records it, that, that one day He was at a wedding and He turned water into wine. And John tells us this was the first miracle, the first sign that He ever performed. And you ask yourself, why? Why would he go 30 years and not perform any miracles and any signs? Because he wasn't ready to preach. Because the message wasn't coming yet. But he gave this sign, we're told in John chapter 2, so that he could manifest his glory and his disciples believe in him. This was the purpose. Because now God was calling him to a public preaching ministry a public teaching ministry. And when that time came, when he would stand before people and he would say, thus saith the Lord, when he would tell them, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, when he stands before them and says that, that, that he has a message that has been hidden in a mystery, a message of his kingdom, when he proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when he says all these things which have never been heard before, God brings confirming signs in his life so that people can know that He's a spokesman of God. So the purpose of miracles was this. It was to validate messengers as reliable providers of new revelation, new truth. Consequently, once that truth had been delivered, had been recorded in the pages of the New Testament, the use for that gift passes off the scene. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that connection between authenticating a messenger and the message that they eventually bring, maybe the reason that Paul comes with the next uh, uh, gift in his list, which is the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Obviously, one of the most fundamental gifts in the entire list. And as a matter of fact, one of the gifts that we have the most information about when it comes to the Scripture. Paul will give himself an extended discussion of it over in chapter 14, but 
before we get there, we can give just brief attention to it now, because probably no other gift, as we said, provides us a clearer picture by which to measure, by which to, to uh, gauge modern manifestations than this gift. And we start off just by noting that the gift of prophecy is something that has been operating among God's people for centuries, for millennia. It goes beyond even the New Testament age into the Old Testament age. You see God raising up prophets, and they were accomplishing specific tasks. For example, prophets were raised up in order to select and appoint leadership. God raises up Samuel so that he can anoint kings and and determine who the leaders are going to be. Prophets were raised up to confront sins, such as Nathan who was raised up to confront David. Prophets were raised up in order to help with key decisions, such as Isaiah, who was sent to Ahab. Prophets were raised up for warnings. They were raised up for hope. They were raised up for exhortation in times of trouble. You read through the minor prophets, and this is what you find. Well, when you establish that sort of paradigm, that sort of uh, benchmark, it's no surprise then that when you come into the New Testament, you see New Testament prophets operating in exactly the same way. In other words, when you read about New Testament prophets, they're doing exactly what these Old Testament prophets were doing. For example, God was raising up prophets for the selection and appointment of leaders. You read Acts chapter 13, and we read that there were prophets among the church at Antioch, and by the voice of those prophets, we read, the Lord said, separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have appointed them. And so God uses the prophets there in the church of Antioch to call forth and appoint leaders. Later on, Paul will tell Timothy that he had been appointed into the ministry by a prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands. And so you see prophets operating in exactly that same way. You see them confronting sins. You see them giving direction about decisions and warnings. Agabus standing up and trying to give direction to the apostle Paul in the operation of his own ministry. You see them with words of exhortation and hope and trust and consolation. All of those things that you see taking place in the Old Testament are exactly what you see either exemplified or defined as prophecy in the New Testament. And that's the obvious conclusion. You read the word prophet, prophets were understood, they were understood naturally that way. They were people who had received supernatural knowledge from God. Simple enough, right? That's what a prophet is. Prophet is someone who receives supernatural knowledge, knowledge that you could not arrive at by natural means. For example, Jesus meets a woman at a well in, in John chapter 4. And they're having this conversation. And they're, they're sort of greeting one another. And along the way, her, her marital status comes up. And, and she tells Jesus that she's not married. And Jesus says, yeah, I know that. You've been married five times. The guy you're with right now, you're not married to. What's her response immediately? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. That's uh, insightful, Right? Why did she say that? She said it for one single reason. Because Jesus knew something no human could know. He knew something that no natural process could have revealed to him. Or you go over to Luke 22 and Jesus is is in the midst of his trials and, and a part of that brutal system, they blindfold him 
and put him in the midst of a bunch of soldiers and they begin to beat him. And these godless soldiers say to Jesus, prophesy and tell us which one of us hit you. You see, their natural understanding of prophecy is obvious. They understood a prophet to be someone who receives supernatural knowledge directly from God. And so this is what a prophet is. When you come to the Old Testament, when you come to the New Testament, when you come to the, the, uh, the uh, if you want to say, the cultural, historical setting of the Bible, this is the way a prophet is understood. There's someone with supernatural knowledge that comes directly to them by God. And when you read the Bible, you see similar carryover from these Old Testament prophets to New Testament prophets, as we mentioned before. You see them doing things like beginning their statements, their oracles, their visions, just like Old Testament prophets who would always declare, thus says the Lord. You see people in the Old Testament saying, thus says the Lord, thus says the Holy Spirit. They viewed themselves as spokesmen for God. Now, it's interesting, if you, if you establish that similarity, if you understand that carryover, if you, if you just if you just lay that paradigm down, then, then you have to pay attention to God's divinely established standard for prophets. He gives it to us in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy the book of Deuteronomy gives us this standard for judging prophets. In fact, it gives us two standards. In Deuteronomy 13, there's a sort of a doctrinal test for prophets. That is to say, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 13 tells us that if any prophet arises among Israel and leads Israel to worship any other God rather than God the Lord, he is to be stoned. That's pretty simple. In other words, if he comes and he's teaching you false religion, he's teaching you false doctrine, he's teaching you false worship, he's a false prophet. It's a doctrinal test. But there's another test, Deuteronomy 18, in 20 through 22 there, we're told that any prophet who arises and speaks presumptuously, or or we would say falsely, so that what he says does not come true, he's to be stoned. So we would say that in addition to the doctrinal test, there's a separate test, a test of accuracy. And the accuracy has to be 100%. If you say anything that doesn't come true, you are summarily executed. It's a pretty rigid test. But, but it doesn't, I, mean, I should say, it only makes sense when you understand what the prophet's claiming to do. He's claiming to speak for God. He's saying, thus says the Lord. He's representing God's voice. And if he represents God's voice, he says, I am telling you something that comes supernaturally to me by God. You can understand why God would be so guarded about the truthfulness of this. Because if God allows people to begin to speak in his name and yet mix in error with what they're saying, then it defames God's fallibility or infallibility. God is very jealous for his own name. He's very jealous for his own character, very jealous for his own reputation, his own glory. And so the standard of prophets is clearly set out in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. You come over the New Testament, it seems no change whatsoever. Prophets are spoken about, prophets operate, prophets use the same language, prophets fulfill the same purpose, prophets are designated the same way. All of those things 
just simply carrying over that ministry and therefore carrying over those same standards. They speak by supernatural knowledge, and when they speak, they speak with 100% accuracy. Now, modern-day proponents of prophets, many of them reject that. Many of them, maybe all of them, I should say. I haven't met one who wants to be held to a a standard of 100% accuracy. I mean, the, the testimony and the record of failed prophecies can fill books just over the last hundred years. I mean, you've got prophecies from, uh, from, from people who claim uh, the end of the world to the building of buildings, the, the accumulation of money to the resurrections from the dead. You have all kinds of people claiming all kinds of things in the name of the Lord and over and over and over again, none of them coming true. But even within a more guarded structure of some movements, there's an effort to establish a different level of prophecy other than what you find in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Very explicit. An effort to establish the fact that that Old Testament prophets were indeed held to a standard of infallibility. And even when you come to the New Testament, apostles, when they spoke for God, were held to the same standard of infallibility. But modern proponents of prophecy have begun to suggest that God created a substandard of prophecy so that men could speak in His name with an admixture of error and that somehow you and I are supposed to dip into the cesspool of whatever comes out of their mouth and divine out the pure Word of God from all of the messed up stuff that comes from their own human flesh. Well, as practically difficult as that would may be, the more disturbing thing is that there's no evidence for that in Scripture. Nowhere do you ever have any indication that God changes His standards. Nowhere do you have any example of any prophet ever speaking in such a way. Nowhere do you ever have any permission to accept any prophet who speaks in the name of God and yet mixes what he says with error. And nowhere will you ever find a more threatening way for Satan to infiltrate the church with his message than to have people willing to accept as a prophet someone that they knowingly, uh, I should say something that they accept knowing that it may have error in it. Now, there have been attempts to justify this new form of prophecy, primarily in the life of Agabus. And if you have your Bibles, you can look with me over at Agabus's prophecy because it's, it's, uh, it is the, I guess you could say the locus classicus of this new prophecy movement. This man, Agabus, who prophesied, by the way, in much the same way as Old Testament prophets. You can see he uses the same introductory formula, thus says the Holy Spirit. He uses a similar tactic for prophesying by word and by deed. That is to say, when he prophesies... He does it not only vocally, but he gives visible illustrations to go along with his prophecy. And this is what we read in Acts 21. Paul had come to Caesarea on the coast of Palestine, and he's about to ascend up to Jerusalem. But he's visiting with the believers there. And we read in Acts 21, in verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him, that is urged Paul, not to go to Jerusalem. So here you have a prophet. And he's operating in similar vein with Old Testament prophets, exactly what you see, using an introductory formula, thus says the Holy Spirit, using visible props, if you will, to go along with his message. But modern day proponents would suggest that what's actually taking place in this passage is a prophet trying to speak for God, and yet along the way making a few small mistakes. For example, they would say that this prophet claims that Paul's going to go to Jerusalem and be imprisoned by the Jews. When in fact, if you keep on reading in chapter 22 and chapter 23, the ones who actually imprisoned Paul are not the Jews, but the Romans. And they would say, here you go. You got a guy, he got generally the right picture, but he got a few, few small, small mistakes. That's the way prophecy works. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I guess if you're going to hold that standard... Then, then you're going to have a lot of trouble moving through the book of Acts. Because what you're going to find as you move through the book of Acts is that over and over and over again, Luke represents people preaching and speaking in what we would call indirect agency. That is to say that they're often assigning culpability for someone when they're only indirectly responsible for it. For example, when, Jesus, when, when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he proclaims to a bunch of Jews that Jesus Christ was sent to them and tested by God, he says in the next verse, this Jesus you crucified. And he's talking to a bunch of Jews, many of them who may not have even been in the city on that day of his crucifixion. They weren't the ones who drove the nails. They weren't the ones who built the cross. They weren't the ones who went to the garden and arrested Jesus that night. But they were every bit as culpable, every bit as responsible, because they were indirectly the agents of the, of the arrest and crucifixion of Christ. And so it would only be natural if you understand the context of the book of Acts. When you come over to Acts 21, you understand what Agabus is talking about. He's not talking about direct agency. He's not saying the Jews themselves are going to arrest Paul. What he's saying is the same thing that what he's doing, I guess, is the same thing that's been done throughout the book of Acts. He's preaching a message. He's giving a message which speaks about the ultimate culpability for Paul's arrest. In other words, the Romans weren't looking for Paul. They wouldn't have rounded him up and arrested him had it not been for a riot which would be fomented by the Jews. So I would think that Agabus is 100% accurate. He's saying exactly what took place. He's pinning the culpability exactly on who needs to hear it. It's the Jews who have it out for Paul, and it's the Jews who will ultimately find him arrested. These modern-day proponents, by the way, would say that Agabus makes a second mistake because he takes Paul's belt and he binds his own feet and his own hands. And he says, in this way, they're going to bind you whenever they go to Jerusalem. They say, see, they didn't bind Paul with a belt. I mean, they probably put metal shackles on him, and really what they did was throw him in prison. So, so Agabus was mistaken because he was imagining that they were going to take their belts off and bind Paul's hands. Well, 
I don't think that is a proper way to understand Agabus. And by the way, I don't think that's the way Paul understood him. Because if you keep reading in the text, Paul answers him in verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping, weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, he knew exactly what Agabus was saying. He understood that this wasn't a literal belt. He understood that Agabus was prophesying in a similar way to Old Testament prophets, using some sort of visible representation of, a, of an ultimate reality that would take place. He understood that just like Jeremiah takes a dirty loincloth and, and walks hundreds of miles in order to bury it in a crevice in some foreign land, And God says, this is what I'm going to do to Israel. He understood that God is not going to wipe out their underwear and leave them, you know, without any britches. He understood that this was a visible image of what God was going to do. He was going to take a dirty and filthy people and take them to a foreign land in captivity. He understood that that sometimes prophets would lie on their side naked for three and a half years as a visible representation of what God was going to do in reality to a people. And so he would have understood Agabus the exact same way as any Old Testament prophet, giving some sort of visible prop, some sort of visible representation of an ultimate reality, which was the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. So far from establishing some secondary, fallible state of prophecy, what we find in Agabus is the confirmation that New Testament prophets operated by the same standard and in the same way and with the same infallibility as Old Testament prophets. And if that's the case, then when anyone stands today and presumes to speak for the Lord, thus saith the Lord, we should have no other standard but to expect 100 percent accuracy 100 percent accuracy well once you do that you're not going to have very many people coming forward anymore claiming to be modern day prophets because no one can do it no one can do it they can't stand that standard and it just drives us back to the same conclusion that we have had about all of these gifts Without the modern manifestation of them, we arrive at the same conclusion that God, for whatever reason, is no longer manifesting this gift among us today. By the way, this may be the basis of Paul's next gift, which is the discerning of spirits. This might have been the gift that God gave to certain other prophets who themselves would have the ability to to judge or weigh or discern when people speak a word of prophecy they would have that ability to be able to determine divinely supernaturally miraculously whether or not what the person is speaking is true and god gave this gift apparently to some of these prophets not to all of us because whenever you come over to first corinthians 14 and you go down to verse 29 You read about this operation of the gift of prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak and then let the others weigh what is said. And he goes on to say, if a revelation is made to one sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets for God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
So in other words, he's laying out this, this paradigm for operation in the church. And when he says, look, when someone stands up to prophesy, you other prophets, you stand by and listen to what he says, and then you weigh it, you judge it, you determine whether what he says is true. By the way, same root word, diakrino, is used there in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul uses over in chapter 12 for the discerning of spirits, crino. The, the judging, the weighing, the discerning of whether or not this person is truly speaking by the Spirit of God. It was probably the lack of this Spirit, the operation of the Spirit, which allowed someone in, in chapter 12, verse 3, to stand up and say that they're speaking by the Holy Spirit when in fact they were declaring Jesus is accursed. The people refusing or, or maybe out of fear, neglecting to operate by the Spirit within this context in this ministry. This gift uh, would have been essential in these days because as we read in Acts chapter 2, God was pouring out on the church a gift of prophecy for old men, for young men, for men and women, for, for, for all kinds of people. God was pouring out on the church a gift of prophecy like the world had never seen. There would have been an explosion of prophets not only in Israel, but throughout all of the churches, throughout all the kingdom. And so there was a great demand on people, not only to hear the word of God by these prophets, but also to have those in the congregation who could weigh what they were being said. And these prophets were fulfilling the same functions you see in the Old Testament in an era when there was no New Testament scripture, when By the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, there might have been three or at the most four New Testament books written. Probably none of them circulated at this point. When churches really had no governing documents, they had to have prophets to help them figure out who's to be an elder, who's to be a pastor, to help them figure out what guidance to have, what steps to take, how to operate, how to function within the church, what doctrines they need to be building on, to help them understand all those things. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that God gave temporarily to the church three, uh, we would say, three offices or or three uh, physically present uh, uh, influences. He gave the apostles and the prophets, and He gave Jesus Christ the chief cornerstone. And we read that Jesus, the chief cornerstone, was laid. The apostles and prophets laid a foundation. And now you and I are building on top of it. Those men came. God used them to bring the word of God to lay a foundation of doctrine and truth. And then they all, Jesus, the apostles, and the prophets, physically passed off the scene. So that we're left with their legacy And we're guided by their doctrine even today. As a matter of fact, it's interesting when you come to the end of the first century, John gives this warning. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Apparently, by the end of the first century, there was no more discerning of spirits. Not in the sense of a supernatural gift, but we are to all, every one of us, test. There was no two or three prophets and the other sitting by. Every one of us now are to be operating in a sense of discernment based on the New Testament Scripture, the doctrine that's been delivered to us once and all, once for all by the saints, discerning error and rejecting 
false prophets. Back over 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's another gift, the eighth in Paul's list, various kinds of tongues. That's what he says in verse 11, that God has given various kinds of tongues. Another gift, by the way, which is claimed by many in the church, and there are movements not just in Pentecostalism and Charismatic, but even in Episcopal churches, Baptist churches, even Charismatic, I mean, excuse me, even Catholic churches have Charismatic movements within them. All kinds of people claiming a Charismatic manifestations, at the very least, if they're not public, many people claiming to have a private gift of tongues, or as they often call it, a private prayer language. And we have to ask ourselves the same question that we ask with all these gifts. Has that any resemblance to what we find in the New Testament when it comes to the description of tongues? Modern day proponents of, of tongues would suggest that the gift is some uncontrollable force that comes over you. And in fact, many of them would say it operates best when you're least in control of your mind. Those who would teach you to speak in tongues would tell you that the key to to operating in the gift of tongues is to release your inhibitions, to clear your mind and just let the Spirit come over you, bypass your understanding so that you can uh, uh, be controlled by the Spirit and issue utterances which are unintelligible to you and certainly unintelligible to those around you. But does this really have any correspondence to which you read in the New Testament? Well, again, our best picture comes from the book of Acts over in chapter 2. The book of Acts describes a pouring out of the Spirit and a gift of tongues that was given that day. We read that a mighty rushing wind came, something came like uh, the sound of a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where the disciples were, Acts 2, 2, and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were all filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak in these tongues. The main word here is glossa. It is translated tongue because sometimes that word refers to the physical organ of speech, which is in your mouth, but it's also translated sometimes as language. As a matter of fact, that is the dominant usage throughout Greek literature. The word glossa is often translated dialect or language because it was used dually. It was used to speak about the organ of speech and it was used to speak about languages. And this is the way that Peter, uh, excuse me, that Luke uses it predominantly here. He's speaking about a gift poured out on these people accompanied by a sign of, of cleft or cloven or divided tongues of fire. But the manifestation of this gift was the ability to speak languages which previously had never been learned. And this is obvious as you just move through the context. Verse 5, he talks about how there were gathered at that point people from every nation under heaven. A little bit of hyperbole, but he's just making the point of the, gra- the, the vast uh, diversity of people there. And in verse 6, he says that all these people were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Idia dialecto is the word. They were hearing them in their own dialect, in their own language. 
Same phrase you find down in verse 8. They were each hearing them in their own language. In fact, Luke goes on in verses 9 through 11 to mention no less than 17 different people, groups, and nations represented that day at Pentecost in order to drive home the point of the diversity of languages that were represented there. And it's clear that this is not some unintelligible babble, some ecstatic speech which couldn't be interpreted by any human person around you because all these people heard these languages and understood what was being said. You'll say, well, maybe God gave them the gift of interpretation. Well, that would be interesting since none of them had received the Holy Spirit at that point. And by the way, none of them were believers. When do you ever find God gifting with spiritual gift unbelievers? There's no indication that these people had some supernatural gift of hearing. The gift was in speaking. The apostles were the ones filled with the Holy Spirit. They were the ones gifted, and they were the ones speaking in tongues. And yet modern-day proponents would want us to believe that the gift isn't anything like this. It is a rapturous experience that produces some sort of ecstatic Babel, unintelligible to any earthly being. In fact, they often claim that it's a heavenly language or even an angelic language. No correlation whatsoever to what you see taking place in Acts 2. In fact, if, if, if Luke had wanted to describe ecstatic babble, there is a Greek word to do that. Phthagomai is the word. And it's used because that kind of ecstatic babble was representative of the pagan religions that were all around. And if you read extra-biblical documents, what you'll find is a lot of reference to phthagomai, Babel, ecstatic speech, which takes place in these pagan religions, just like it does today in pagan religions all around the world. Luke didn't communicate that because that's not what was taking place. What was taking place was exactly what we read, languages from all over the world, miraculously being spoken by those who had never studied them. By the way, this is exactly the way Pentecost understood it. Excuse me, this is the way Pentecostals understood the gift from their earliest days. You go back and read the history of Pentecostalism. You read about the Azusa Street, supposed revival at Azusa Street in 1900, 1901. And when you read about is a lady named Agnes Osman, who was supposedly the first person to speak in tongues on the North American continent and in the modern world. And she claimed not to speak in ecstatic babble. She claimed to be able to speak in Chinese. So bold was her, uh, was her proclamation that she was willing to write down the Chinese characters that the Lord was giving to her, which were promptly published in the Los Angeles Times, and ridiculed by all of the Chinese population in Chinese as having no resemblance whatsoever to their language. And we know that because those copies of the Los Angeles Times are still available to us today. You can see the ridiculous stuff. As a matter of fact, as Pentecostalism went on, after about 30 or 40 years, there was a, there was, there was a, a movement among Pentecostals to go to foreign lands, believing that once they stepped off of the boat in India or China or Africa, where it was, they believed that they would immediately be given a gift to be able to speak to the people that they were talking to. Every one of them, every one of them came back disappointed. As time rolled on, there were linguists who wanted to put under the microscope this claim. One of the most famous 
Dr. Samarin from the University of, uh, of Toronto spent a number of years in the late 60s and early 70s attending Pentecostal meetings, taking copious notes, and the end of his thorough study was that, that Pentecostal uh, manifestations in the name of tongues have no internal structure, have no uh, in, internal consistency so that it could ever be classified by anything that we would know in the rational world as a language. There were other studies where people would actually record tongues speakers. And they would take those recordings and they would find a number of people who claimed to have the gift of interpretation. They would play the recording and every one of those people who had the gift of interpretation all came up with vastly different interpretations of what was said. So in other words, by all conceivable evidence... Whatever is taking place today under the rubric, under the name of tongues, has no resemblance to either, either what took place in Acts 2 or what took place as a language or in general. Which, not surprisingly, leads charismatics to say, well, there's a different kind of tongues. Just like they do with prophecy. Once you put them under the microscope, once you, once you look for some sort of criteria... Once you begin to put scrutiny from the scripture on them, they create some subcategory, which is difficult to discern, in fact, impossible to discern from scripture. But the common paradigm today is that God did pour out a gift of languages in Acts chapter 2. That's undeniable, and most charismatics today recognize that. But they say that that was something unique just for that particular day, and that subsequent to that, God gave a different kind of gift, a gift of ecstatic babble or prayer language so that you, you operate in moanings and groanings which you can't even understand that supposedly are understandable only to God. Well, um, uh, that's, that, that is ingenious and clever, but it doesn't stand up under the scrutiny of Scripture. In fact, it's interesting to read the early church fathers who all commented on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and unanimously... They all looked at Paul's descriptions of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 as a, as a reference to the exact same gift in Acts 2. The history of the church has always understood that. The early church, those who were closest to the events, understood that. And even an examination of the terminology that's used seems to affirm that. Far from any evidence that somehow God gave one gift and then replaced it with another. When you go through the book of Acts, you read that the gift of tongues is referenced as late as Acts 19. In the city of Ephesus, we're told that some of the disciples of John the Baptist were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. That was after Paul had already spent a year and a half in Corinth. And probably in the exact same year that he wrote the book of Corinthians itself. Every evidence is that there aren't two gifts of tongues, there's one. And if you're going to claim to have the gift of tongues, it's going to have to stand up to biblical scrutiny. And if you're going to expect us to operate with any level of discernment, with any level of, of jealousy for the, for the glory of God, with any concern for truth, you're going to expect us to hold up the Scripture as the barometer, as the measure, as the guide of what we accept as something truly by the Holy Spirit. One more gift that Paul lists here in verse 11, the interpretation of tongues. It's obvious this is simply the companion 
to this gift of tongues that the Lord had given to some believers. Pretty straightforward. It's just tongues in reverse. It is the, the ability not to speak, but the ability to hear and understand languages which you've never previously studied. And we don't know much about this gift other than the fact that there apparently weren't many people with it. Because even in 1 Corinthians 14, later on, in verses 27 and 28, Paul will come back to address the operation of tongues within the church, and he'll indicate that there will be times when people want to speak tongues, and there's not a single person present who has the gift of interpretation. So whatever it was, it was very rare. And that's because, as we'll see in a few weeks, tongues was never meant for the church. The gift of tongues was never meant to be in operation in the midst of believers. In fact, Paul says that, that he himself would rather speak five words with his understanding than 10,000 words with a tongue. You say, well, he couldn't control it, right? It just comes over you. No, you can control it. In fact, Paul says, look, if you're a tongue speaker and, and there's no interpreter, don't speak. You have perfect control over it. It's not something that bypasses your mind. It's something that works in, in coordination with your mind. So this is Paul's understanding of the gift. This is the biblical understanding of the gift. This is something that is, that is controllable, something that is subject to our own wills, something that operates just like every other gift operates in dependence on the Holy Spirit and for the edification of other saints. And yet something when we examine the New Testament data doesn't appear to be in operation today. Why? Why would that be? Well, because so many of these miraculous gifts operated in an era when there was no New Testament Scripture. Many of them fulfilled the very roles that the New Testament now fulfills for us. Roles of validation, roles of testing, roles of revelation, roles of instruction and guidance, roles of encouragement and hope. All of these gifts that we read about here in verses 11, excuse, 8 through 11 all seem to have ceased or passed off the scene. Because what ultimately replaced them was the Word of God. It was the New Testament Scripture, which we cling to. I love what Peter says over in 2 Peter chapter 1. When he speaks about how he was on the mountain with the Lord. And he heard from heaven the divine voice that says, This is my beloved Son. And Peter goes on to say, But you have a prophetic word more Sure, you have a more solid prophetic word. And this prophetic word, he says, is the scripture, which isn't given by any private interpretation, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke and wrote down for us what they have. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21. Peter says, look to the word of God. Look to the New Testament. More solid, more sure, more to be clung to more to be sought after than any sort of ecstatic or thrilling experience because of some miraculous gift. Well, we will, we will cling to it. We will use it. It will be our guide, our judge, even as we understand the working of the Spirit. I want to just say a word. You can hear all that and you can maybe accuse me or others of being anti-Holy Spirit. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I tell people all the time, 
yeah, we're faith community church. We're a spirit-filled church. Uh, they wouldn't let me put it on the sign out front. The elders objected to that. But <laughs> I know it communicates to some people some things, but it communicates to me something else. That we constantly depend on the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We constantly communicate to people that you cannot serve, you cannot be sanctified, you cannot operate in any kind of fruitful way apart from the supernatural work of God flowing through you. And so we encourage people all the time, be filled with the Spirit, operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We firmly, firmly believe in the necessity and the power of the Spirit working in the church. But He doesn't work miraculously. He works graciously in acts of providence, gifts of grace, given to us for the common good. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the instruction from your word, thankful that you have given us all that we need to clearly understand these gifts, all that we need to discern those who operate in error and those who would even defame your name. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from ever being deceived by those things. I pray that you would equip us to be able to speak reasonably and biblically to these issues. And I pray that not only by this study, but by every one that we take in the coming weeks, that you would help us to understand the great, great need to have you supernaturally operating through us in all kinds of gifts, ministering for the edification of others and for the glory of your name. We stand for that, Lord. We will guard that to our dying day. And may you be pleased to manifest yourself powerfully through us to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.